Hey, one more thing before you go. Do you want to learn about loss, pain, empowerment, and transformation, as well as aligning your soul with the universe? Stay tuned as we share the journey of a woman who, after experiencing her own loss through the death of loved ones and a painful divorce, she decided to turn her pain into passion and help others navigate life a little bit easier. She's here to show you how to do that. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Michelle Augston. She's an empowerment and transformational coach. She holds certifications in intuitive life coaching as well as certified in meditation and mindfulness. She works with her empath, like-minded people to empower them to break the patterns that have been holding them back to create an authentic life filled with purpose and meaning. She's going to do that for you today. This is the thing about aligning your soul with the universe. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. That was quite the introduction. We are quite the person. So, oh, it, oh thank you. It, it deserved <laughs> an introduction like that. See, <laughs> I'll take it. I like that. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, you you have an amazing journey of where you've come from and where you're at now, and what you've done for this world, and how you contribute back to this world. So, I think I'd like to kind of get into that a little bit and learn more about you where you've come from, and how you got to where you're at right now. Because an empowerment coach is an amazing individual because you allow people to grow in a positive way. I hope so. (laughs) That's what I'm working towards, Michael. So let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I'm actually born and raised in Sonoma County, California, which is Northern California. And... um, I really am sort of a river rat. I grew up by the river, spent every summer out at the Russian River. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I didn't really realize that until I left and I moved to Tahoe for a while. And then I came back and I was like, oh my gosh, I miss the wine country. <laughs> so that's where I grew up. I'm born and raised and I haven't left. I'm still in Sonoma County. What was your family like? My family. Um, my family, I actually, my parents were... I. I would say maybe around nine, my parents got divorced and I was raised both Catholic and Jewish. So I have a very um, religious upbringing and um, (laughs) I know, right. If you know anything about being Catholic or being Jewish, you understand that they're at odds. (laughs) So hence the divorce came and I was lucky enough that I had a mom that sort of helped me broaden my horizon with spirituality because I was not feeling the Catholic religion or the Jewish religion. Well, you know, it is, I grew up um, Catholic. I, I am not a practicing Catholic, uh, but I grew up a Catholic. So I kind of can understand from there. I do have friends of mine and actually colleagues that were Jewish, so I've got a perspective from the Jewish side of it as well. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a conflict, I guess. Um, <laughs> right? Do you have brothers and sisters, siblings of any height? I am actually an only child. I do have stepbrothers and stepsisters, but I wasn't raised with anybody. So I'm technically an only child. This works. Please, everybody, keep listening. I'm still a good person. Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Did you, <laughs> did you go to university? I didn't. I tried. 
I'll be honest. I, yeah, I tried. I went to junior college for three years, was studying um, psychology, and then I just got burnt out. I didn't want to continue. And so I actually have a very eclectic career. I went to beauty school for a while. I worked in medical for years since I was 15. I worked in spas for, I don't know, 12 years. (laughs) And then I landed as being a coach. I know. So So diverse upbringing, I guess. So it is, let's start. Let me ask you this. As I stumble over my words. So that's right. You went to university. When you get out of university, did you get married at one point? I didn't get married until I was 32. I actually dated my, um, okay, let's see. No, wait, erase, erase. Let's start that over. I um, had a child at 23 with somebody that I did not get married to. And that was an abusive relationship. So I was actually lucky that I did not get married. And I started my life with my oldest daughter and I met a wonderful man who I dated for nine years before we got married. And then we were married for another nine years. So was, we were together for 18 years before our divorce. That's, that's, a, that's a good, well, 18 years is a pretty good run. Pretty good run, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I look, yeah, it, it, I, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, my listeners know, I was a police officer for years and I was part of a domestic violence task force and that's all we dealt with for oh. uh, um, just short of four years I did that. So in watching people really, the worst of the worst within domestic violence and abusive relationships, mm-hmm. watching that take place. And I grew up in a very dysfunctional family myself. Um, you know, 18 years is a positive thing. Obviously, I think that, um, you know, sometimes when people get to a point where they they decide that they can't live together anymore or, or and they or they split, that's, that's fine too. It opens a new chapter in your life. Mm-hmm. So you... Definitely. You um, you lost somebody. I did, yes. Let's talk about that. I did. All right. Um, I've actually lost a few people, but the one that we're specifically talking about was um, somebody that was a dear, dear friend of mine since we were 12 years old. And then we started dating when I was 18. And so we were together for three years, sort of that like formative time, you know, first new love um, and we actually didn't end up staying together, but because we were friends since we were 12, we remained very good friends. And um, it wasn't until later that he ended up actually taking his own life. Um, you would never have known from the outside. He was extremely successful, had money, you know, all the things, a boat, truck, you know, girlfriend, and um, had an extreme lack of feeling like he connected with people and just feeling very isolated and alone. And so he ended up um, taking his own life. And it's um, probably one of the reasons I am a coach today. So are you okay with talking a little bit more about that in the suicide? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can. I understand it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, two of my best friends had committed suicide, and um, yeah. it it was. I went through an immense amount of feeling in regard to why didn't they let me know? Why didn't I see it? Um, did you have any of those kind of feelings? 
Um, my story is just a tad bit differently. I was um, very, very close to him. So I knew we actually talked about suicide for nine months to the point of where he actually passed away. I knew the night before he died, he actually told me he had tried to do it that day and he didn't succeed. And then the next morning, I think I was one of the last people he talked to before he actually succeeded. So I was very intimately involved. And so I think my questioning was a little different. I had to think like, why couldn't I save him? So for me, I was very, I had to go to a lot of grief therapy. I had to really work through like, why couldn't I save him? I just couldn't understand. And I went through a lot of anger of why weren't more people involved? Um, this was obviously years ago before I had done, um, a lot of therapy and coaching, but Mm -hmm. there was those questions for me as far as why, why was this the choice? Why did we get here? Yeah. It's, did did he at any time, I mean, is he a family that may have noticed or somehow got involved or at least tried to get involved? Yes. I mean, we, there was a probably his mother and I were the closest people. His brother also knew his younger brother. Um, He just had a really, he was 28 at the time and he had an extreme lack of um, really feeling like he fit in, even though he did again on the outside, you would not have known you would, he looked very successful and, you know, slowly through this depression and sort of, you know, I honestly don't know all the diagnoses because he kind of refused to get all of them, but he definitely was suffering from some sort of personality disorder or just severe depression, maybe manic depression and refused to get help. There was a lot of stigma for him around having any sort of mental anything going on. And that's why I'm here today. Today, I do feel like um, as a man, he felt very much like he had to be a certain way. He had to provide. He had to look strong. He had look, to look like he had it all together all the time. And it was really almost it was it was impossible for him to be vulnerable in front of the world and just say, I'm not OK right now. I'm not doing all right. And that isolation just made it worse and worse for him. And slowly, you know, led to his death. At what point in your life, I mean, did that take place? Was it, um, if I can ask, how old was he? Mm-hmm. He was 29 when he actually killed himself. Yeah, see, it's, you know, suicide is, I've talked to other people on the show about suicide, and again, like I said, I've had personal connection, not only from colleagues of mine, but obviously on the job, I dealt with suicide from a different perspective, from outside the mm-hmm. box. And that always made it difficult for me um, with both of my friends that had done it. Actually, I actually got three friends. One guy from high school had done it as well. Um, it, it, it gave me an opportunity to reflect upon myself as well because I had to question, I did this for a living. I watched people who, and I've talked to people who were in, in the process of trying to commit suicide and I've talked them out of it. And then later mm-hmm. down the road, it kind of it didn't backfire. But later down the road, they found another way. I mean, it's kind of one of those things yeah. where I think people feel a despair, um, or that they have no other choice to go into that environment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. from, from your experience in your position, 
in regard with that kind of a loss? What did it, it motivated you to become a coach, you said, right? It did. I mean, it took, um, it took probably 15 years to be completely honest. I knew there was something that I was going to do in relation to his suicide. I just didn't know what it was at that time. I, um, I was in a lot of grief for a lot of years of just really not, um, not understanding everything and letting go of the guilt. I had a lot of guilt around why couldn't I save him? And that took a lot of time for me to really sort through. Thank God for therapy and coaches. (laughs) Um, And what happened was, is that I actually found myself in a very similar position. I was um, married at that time and I had the perfect life. I had a husband I'd been together with for, you know, at this time it was probably 16 years at that point. And um, from the outside, I looked, I looked great. I had a house, I was on the PTA and I was miserable. And I felt extreme guilt over not feeling happy with what I had. And I tried to do all the right things. I, you know, I worked out, I read books, I you know, spent time with my children and the people I love. And there was a day when I, luckily I worked from home. I dropped my kids off at school and I, I drove home and I'm you know, sitting on the edge of the bed, just feeling very depressed. And we get this email blast from the school saying that one of the ladies that was part of like the mom community had dropped off her children and that she killed herself. And it was this moment that I just sat there and I thought, this could be me. What if this was me? I knew from his experience with depression that it was this very slippery slope and that I, that could be me one day. And that moment scared me enough to just contemplate it for a second of would my kids be better off? Would this be a better life for everybody else if I was gone? That scared me so much. And he sort of helped me, that memory of him helped me pick up the phone. And I started reaching out for help at that moment. And that was when I was like, this is it. I have to be a coach. Did you think you were suffering from um, depression? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At that time, I definitely was. I was very codependent. So I could hardly figure out my own emotions. I didn't know how to make a decision. In fact, that's what I went to therapy for. Of of all things, I couldn't say I was depressed. I said, I'm having trouble making a decision right now, and I don't know why. (laughs) That's how I started therapy. And it was, you know, the peeling back of the layers that I realized that I was depressed. I was still carrying some grief that um, I had a lot of shame around not being happy and how to work through all of that. Right. I think that um, depression in this country is kind of a, uh, a, almost a taboo subject in a lot of areas, unfortunately. Uh, we have family members that suffer from depression, and it's something that they, do you think everybody feels like they, when they're going through a depression, for example, that they need to hide that? Or do you think that they feel because of societal, the environment today, that it's something they need to hide? Or does that make sense? You know, it, yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, it's a tricky question in the sense that I think there's like two parts to it. One is we live in a society that is fascinated by other people. I mean, social media is huge. We're fascinated by, you know, what are others doing? And we get a peek into their lives and we see their pictures and we think this is real. And it creates this real 
like I'm not measuring up syndrome. Uh, you know, I, my family doesn't look like that. I'm not happy like they are. And it creates this situational depression of, well, why am I not in insert the blank, right? Why am I not this? Why am I not happy? Why aren't my kids happy all the time? And you feel less than, and I think that creates a real depression. I think also too, we can get really stuck in a victim mentality. And so we hold on to that and that becomes our anchor or how we survive. We learn to cope with trauma by being a victim and then we stay there and we don't grow. And my opinion would be, I'm not sure that's what the universe or God wanted for you is to just stay there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you think it's typical for people that lose somebody to um, to go through the shame and the guilt, whether it be through suicide or, or any circumstance, I guess, involving death or losing somebody? That's a good question. And you probably have an opinion about this, too. <laughs> I think I have lost a few people in my life. Um, and I can definitely say that suicide is a completely different healing process than quote, like normal death. I've actually lost people in accidents too, where I had a boyfriend who fell off a rock out at this, um, at a beach and was killed. So I've lost people tragically. I've lost people to suicide and then I've lost people, you know, to natural death. And I can say that suicide is a completely different beast in the way that I coped. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way. You said you had lost two people to suicide. So you might have an opinion about this. Three, right? Do you feel like it was a different coping for you? Um, it, it was in, in actuality. And part of it, I think in my particular, no, no excuses, but in part of my situation, um, I was I was a cop. And, you know, you get, it's ingrained. In, and when I say this, I have to be very careful because of today's environment. It's ingrained in you that you can't be a human being, that you cannot show fear, you cannot cry, you you. You cannot uh, be weak. You you have to be strong because usually you're having to deal with other people and their whatever they're going through, and you cannot show those emotions. You you are taught to push your emotions down, override them, and move forward. So, I kind of went through that a little bit based upon a couple of different viewpoints. I pushed it down. I held it down, but at some point, it all came out. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's because even though I got taught to push it down and override it, it was back to the same thing. The John was the godfather of my kids. So I got him into law enforcement. And mm -hmm. he killed himself because of things on the job. So I felt guilty there from a different perspective, see, because he's yeah. like, why didn't you just talk to me? Why didn't you... You know, you're like family. I trust you with my kids enough to, to, we trust you, I should say, not just me, but we trust you enough with our kids that we made you a godfather. We asked you to be a godfather. And not the mafia godfather, but the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification. We want people to know that. <laughs> Although I got a guy, see. <laughs> it's, it is... It was difficult for me to really kind of, because I'd spent years dealing, when I was a cop and an investigator, dealing with death from another perspective, where you have to be business. Death was mm -hmm. business. 
Everything was business. You had to be compassionate. You, and that was part of my problem. I'm, I'm empathetic and I'm compassionate. So every time I would go someplace that somebody died or was shot or was killed or unattended or whatever the case may be, or killed in a traffic accident and had to deliver a message, I was strong when I was there. But when I went to the patrol car, I had to, you know, hide my face It because of that. Well, the same thing with John, for example, um, is you have my phone number, why didn't you call me? So I felt guilty about that. I felt mad about that. I felt angry about that. And then I kind of understand a little bit of where he was coming from. Not that that's the way I felt, but when I understood the circumstances of why he just chose that path, it made more sense to me, but I was still angry. Mm-hmm. And I was still depressed. And I was still, I couldn't even... And I felt guilty about this, too. At his funeral, I could not go up in front of a whole church full of cops and their family members. Most of them I worked with and and say goodbye to John because I knew if I went up there, the minute I opened my mouth, I was going to, everything was going to just come out. Yeah. But it took up until that point for, for me to reach that point. And then when I came home, I just, you know, Letting it all go, unfortunately, with my wife and my kids. But um, yeah, it's a different kind of it's a different kind of mourning. It's a different kind of grief. It's a different kind of guilt. It's a different kind of shame. It's a different kind of all the way around. I think. Absolutely, and I think you you said something that really I think hits home for a lot of people, which is, you know, what you don't release, you recycle, and so we're taught, especially men are taught from very early on to not have emotion and to not express. And so I feel like as a society, we're doing men a disservice by, you know, raising them, not all men, not all, you know, not all families raise their boys like this, but um, collectively speaking, we do raise a lot of men to be tough, to provide, to protect and, what happens is a lot of times exactly what you just said, which is we're, we're taught to, you know, push it back, push it back. And then it comes out in other ways. And I know this is, you know, what happened to my friend who was going through this moment was that, you know, he was taught to be tough. He was from a biker family and, you know, he had to be strong and all the time. And that, that feeling of I'm not okay right now, that was overwhelming. Like you said, like you couldn't get up and speak at the funeral. It was too overwhelming for you. Mm -hmm. And it was like that for him, like he couldn't stand in that and just be like, I'm not okay right now. And I don't know what to do then with all these emotions that I'm having because I'm not okay. And I think if we can go back and and think about like, what are we doing? How do we teach men that you can be vulnerable for a moment, you know, a moment in time, or you can be vulnerable for however long you need. And you are still all the things that you, you were before. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're still wonderful. <laughs> you're still a human being. And you know, you, mm-hmm. you still have family. You still Everything about you is still 100% you. It just, you you have this stigma that prevents you from moving forward. But it's not just having the cops. It happens to doctors, nurses, mm-hmm. especially in COVID last year. An overwhelming number of doctors and nurses and EMTs and paramedics and firefighters that just couldn't, let it out because you can't 
you're you're taught to be strong. You're taught to not, you, you know, you when everybody else is running there, into the danger, into the melee, into the fight, into the whatever it happens to be, you know, everybody else is running that way. You're running into it. Yeah. Whether it be the the emergency room or you know a domestic violence or anything along that line, it's kind of one of those things where you just kind of. You forget how to be a human being. And I think that's why burnout is so real for and most people in emergency response careers, whether it be a cop or, you know, medical person or fire, like these careers, like you said, you are taught to dial that part down and dial up the response of action. And so your burnout, you hit it hard when you hit it because you're, you have been you know, pushing it back for so long. So when you hit burnout, oh my gosh, it's like you crash into it. <laughs> yeah, big time. And, and, I, and I know that it happens not only with 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 people in my line of business and in the, the medical world and everything else, but it happens to normal individuals too because they're, mm-hmm. they may grow up in an environment like that where they're taught, be a man, suck it up. You know, be strong, suck it up. You're, you know, be a strong woman, suck it up. It, it's, you know, you're... Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in society today, you have those environments that don't allow people to be human mm-hmm. and to experience it. Yes. It's just like talking about death. Death in this country is taboo. You, you don't mm-hmm. you don't talk about death. Um, realistically, it's kind of an unspoken yeah. word. My, my first funeral, <laughs> my first funeral when I was. I think I was probably nine years old or ten years old when my great grandfather Newman died, and mm-hmm. all I was told was, you know, we're going to put you in the suit. You're going to go say um, we're going to go to the funeral. You're going to bury your grandfather. I had no understanding mm-hmm. of it. All I remember is being there, and there's all these people there, and everybody's crying, and everybody's, you know, bringing flowers and holding hands. And here's this casket laying there that I had really never seen other than watching old vampire movies <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it was kind of a whole new experience because it wasn't explained to me the mm-hmm. process wasn't explained well what happened to grandpa Newman? well he just died why you know the, yeah. the environment was well we just don't talk about that he, he died of natural causes he was like 98 years old something like that so he was a he was a grumpy old man that's <laughs> what he was <laughs> But it's okay, you know. But it's at the same time, it's it it wasn't talked about, you know. My father had a friend of his that committed right. suicide, and I remember playing with the with the kids of that individual. This guy worked for the newspaper. My father worked for the newspaper, and we went over to the house afterwards. And you know, I said, "What happened to your dad?" I don't know. He's just not here. You know, I didn't find out till years later many years later that his dad had killed himself shot himself yeah. you know mm-hmm. because it just wasn't talked about which I, which I think is wrong um, which brings us to why you became obviously become an empowerment coach not just an empowerment coach but yeah. from a spiritual level let's talk about this from a spiritual level in, in, in loss and in grief and in moving people forward did that change your life on a spiritual level since you were raised Catholic and kind of Catholic and Jewish cross? Yeah, like a hybrid. (laughs) (laughs) Hybrid of that. Um, 
No, but I can tell you that my spirituality and my intuition helped me cope. It really helped me understand on a a different level than I think I was taught about, you know, what happens and that it's okay and how energy works and spiritual spirits and spirituality. Cause I, I did, I was at 16. I was not confirmed. I luckily had a mom who, um, took me out, let me sort of experiment. And I found this wonderful teacher um, from the Inner Light Foundation. She actually is no longer with us, but she taught me about spirituality. And I did my first guided visualization and I was like blown away, completely changed my life. And so I, right. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. This will be my favorite part. This is, yeah, that's a (laughs) goat. It changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. It finally, for the first time, I was understanding what I had felt all along deep down inside, which was that um, God or a higher power or Allah or Buddha or whoever you connect with, the universe, whatever higher power you believe, we were all talking about the same thing. And maybe I do meditation and maybe you pray, but it's we're all kind of doing the same thing. We're just resonating with different words and different cultures and different sort of rituals. And to me, that made sense. I never ever from a very young age believed that we should be classifying or segregating people based on um, beliefs that never made sense to me, which is why I was so conflicted with Jewish and, and the Catholic religion. Like I couldn't understand. I was like, but they love people and they love people. I don't not, I don't get it. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it it is a it is vast con- contradiction within itself between the Jewish faith and the Catholic faith. Um, yes, immense difference. Uh, from a <laughs> spiritual perspective, you know, I I and my listeners know this, so it's nothing new. But uh, yeah, I told you I was not a practicing Catholic. I'm more of a spiritual individual. I believe in the universe. I believe in angels. I also believe in the mother nature and how we all exist together in one. I believe in the earth and the trees and the plants and the birds and the bees and you know everything else that goes along with it and that we all coexist to make life better on earth. So let's talk about your first visualization. That's interesting. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. I mean, I'll be honest, I feel like the world like opened up on a whole new level. Um it it was the first time that I felt like I connected to spirituality, even though I had taken tons of religious classes. I was I had all my sacraments up until that point. So to me, it was just, I felt like finally for the first time that everything made sense. And I saw, what would that be? Like I got to see things. I got to like, she guided us through this sort of process of expanding my mind and connecting with energy around. And it was very easy for me to do. I slipped in very quickly, probably because I had done so much prayer work in my life. Right. <laughs> I think I just tapped in very quickly. Do you, do you believe in the afterlife? Yes. You believe it on a, on a <laughs> reincarnation side? Yes, I do. I do. I believe, I mean, if we really want to get into it, Michael, let's just break it down. Okay. I truly believe that we design our lives before we come here. 
So everything that we've gone through, we were meant to go through. And I do believe in reincarnation. I believe um, in who we are connected with, who we have in our lives are exactly what we were supposed to have to learn the lessons that we needed to do in this life. You know, I, I agree with you. I think that it, it's, I think I, it, it was taught to me one time before about the kind of a step process that we come back each time to learn something new, to add it to the toolbox, so to speak, either to learn a lesson or to um, kind of help people in a different way so that we can evolve each time we come back and, and finally get to a higher level of existence. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something along that line? I do. In fact, it's funny because I tell my husband, my I'm remarried now and I have a wonderful husband. And I, in the beginning of our relationship, I was very conflicted about why can I have met you sooner? Why can I have met you sooner? You know, life would have been so different. And so I finally got to the point where I said, well, okay, next time we come back, can you just find me sooner? And I promise I'll be ready. <laughs> and so it's like this deal I feel like I've made in this lifetime so that next time It'll happen sooner, but we can still have our same kids. That's the deal. Like we have to have some kids. That's I don't know that I get to program it that way, but I'm I'm leading with that. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, my my <laughs> wife and I both. Well, my wife, my wife had to open my eyes in this regard. She says that, like you said earlier, you, that's interesting that you brought that up. That we are already make we plan it up there already. We say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in this life. This is what I'm going to see. Who are, this is what's going to happen to me? You know, you kind of. Every time I do something, I'm like, why did I do that? And my wife says, because you chose it. You you decided to do it that way. So it's like, yeah, but I don't, I'm going to go back up and change that. Thank you. <laughs> can I, can right? I know. Good for her. Erase that part. <laughs> and then, yeah. then kind of, what do they call it? A mulligan? We get a, let me do a mulligan right yeah. here. Yeah. Get a mulligan. Yeah. Oh, that's that's funny. Um, I think it can be really tricky, too, for people. Um, when you've experienced trauma, you know, when you've been raped or you've been molested or you've had some major trauma and you think, what are you saying right now? Like I chose those things. Like that doesn't like, why would I choose that? And for me, I always step back and go, okay, well, what, what did you learn from it? What did it teach you? How did it impact your life? Because clearly there's something that came from that, that helped you really understand life in a different way or have greater empathy or there was something that came from that that you learned in that situation i don't know for me it helps me understand the traumas that i've been through and like why did i do this and why would i have done that and why did i choose these things i tr i always think what is the lesson if this happened for me not to me how did it happen for me so i really spent a lot of time in my life really asking those questions how did this happen for me yeah i i i think when i when we had this conversation before we started this interview um this conversation that we're having you know i when i got injured in the, on the job when i got injured at work you know, it changed my perspective on life immensely. I had a certain path that I thought I was on, and it, the majority of individuals that I have worked with or had worked under me as a sergeant of the sergeant, um, on my way to lieutenant, by the way, um, went on to be captains, commanders, assistant chiefs, chiefs, you know, uh, under sheriffs, sheriffs actually. And those individuals went on to do that. I kind of got left behind. And for the longest time, 
even the statement of my wife said, well, you chose this. And I had to stop and really think, well, can you re, can you rewrite destiny? Can you rewrite what you think your path is, do you think? I mean, I think I've kind of rewritten mine to a, to a point because I never knew that I would end up where I'm at right now talking to you. And I've talked to people from all over the world on this podcast and, and episodes on this podcast. And to me, it it is a benefit to me because I've been able to share their journeys from all across the world, 59 different countries, actually. And wow. meet people from all these different countries that that I never would have met before as a cop. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, I'll be honest. I'm still, I'm still conflicted on this one. Like, I don't know if I've really, I don't know if I've really figured this part out. I'm still, I'm, I'm big enough to say that I'm still kind of conflicted on this part where it's like, do I believe in destiny? Do I believe in fate? You know, yes. Do I believe that you can rewrite? Yes. So it's like, yes, I believe in destiny. And is your destiny then to rewrite? I, you know, it, that's, it's like the, it's kind of feel like the chicken or the egg. Is it the fate or is it your destiny? Or are you supposed, is this what's supposed to happen? I do believe that this is what's supposed to happen. So yes, I think you can rewrite, but then I think you probably chose to rewrite. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> well, I, had, I had a really interesting, you might appreciate this. I had a really interesting conversation with a, with a woman that, uh, she says that she basically, she's Chinese, and she mm -hmm. said that, you know, as a child, they go out and get these books done by the Chinese seers and the, the, the mystical, metaphysical part of China, and they, um, the China culture, I guess, and the, they basically come back with this book, and you open that book, and it says, well, this is your destiny, and it gives you four pillars of destiny, and this is what's going to happen in mm -hmm. the four quarters of your life quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. And she'd said, um, they told me I was going to die horribly when I was 40 years old. And I said, well, I'm a gentleman, so I won't ask you how old you are now. <laughs> she said, I'll tell you. <laughs> and she says, I'm 57. So she said, um, I chose not to follow that destiny, and I changed my destiny. So even though it was, quote, written, I can't do quotes because I can't lift my left arm. So one quote. Okay, I'll do it for you. Th thank you. Quote. My <laughs> destiny was written, but you know, she changed it because she actually lived past forty years old, and you know, she said that was kind of iffy when she got to forty. Like, okay, looking over her shoulder all the time, and <laughs> oh, I bet something. I mean, that would have been. Yeah, that would have been very intense. I know, you know, part of my training when I was 16 is actually learning to be psychic and like really developing that part of my brain. And one of the things that you're taught is that you have to be very careful with self-fulfilling prophecies that if somebody feels like they're going to die or like you, you know that somebody's going to die, do you tell them or not? And there's always been this like, no, you don't tell people that they're going to die. You just don't because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And some mm -hmm. people really change their lives based on that information. But like in her case, that was a good thing. Like she changed things for the better where she was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm that's not going to be my fate. Yeah. She, she so, went to, she's got created a little empire for herself. And she said it, it made her parents mad, but I mean, she says this in the episode, so I'm not giving anything away, but 
You say, your parents really mad that she changed her destiny. And it's like, well, you know, she's happy. She's making money. She's living life and she's enjoying a life. And there you go. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that person that wrote their destiny should should um, go back to school <laughs> and, learn, <laughs> and learn something again, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I know you, speaking of destiny and what you do, at one point you got involved in Brains Magazine. What is that? It's an online magazine where coaches and professionals get to write articles. And so I am an executive contributor for them and I do... I write articles usually once a month, although this year has been insanely busy. So it's like every six weeks. <laughs> so I write topics on everything from, you know, how to tell, how do you tell somebody that you're intuitive to, you know, three steps to mindfulness? How do you build your mindfulness muscle? How do you know you're a light worker? So these sort of kind of, I'm definitely part of the woo woo clan, Michael. I'm a huge part of the woo woo clan. <laughs> Well, it, that's, that's okay. So I'm like, I, it's, it is, okay. you know, like I said, my life, my life changed dramatically after I got injured and my life uh, took a new path. And I've really, my mind's eye opened up, my heart opened up, my soul opened up, my everything opened up, including my shoulders when I got them replaced. You have brand new shoulders. I have brand new shoulders. So it's a positive thing. So speaking of the Woo Woo Club, you facilitate yeah. the soul's assignment club. What does that mean? I do love this club. I'm of course I'm biased, but, um, so I run a couple groups on Facebook. Those are just the free groups. And those are for soul centered people who feel very called. They usually lead with their soul lead, you know, very soulful lives. And um, I work a lot with empaths, which are people who have hypersensitive mirror neurons, which are the little neurons in your brain that stand up all the time. And this club is really designed for people who feel like they lead that way and how to live a life that is really tailored towards them. It's all done on a self-compassion mindfulness program. So I am certified mindfulness and meditation teacher. So a lot of what I do when I work with clients is really work with self-compassion and mindfulness practices to incorporate into your life to really lead this authentic life, like really break patterns that are not serving you anymore and lead a life that's very authentic. And we do this by, it's all called aura process. I call it auras. And you find awareness, understanding, releasing, accepting yourself, and then creating this success plan. And this is what we work on in the Souls Assignment Club. That's fantastic, actually. Um, Are you an empath? I am. You're an empath. Tell me what an empath is. Actually, tell my listeners what an empath is. Help us understand that. Sure. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, the older term was like an indigo child. I think in the 70s, it was called an indigo child or an indigo. Does that sound correct? Um, I know, right? So an empath is, I think I said just a couple minutes ago, is somebody who's born with hypersensitive mirror neurons, which are your compassion neurons. And they just stand on end like little grass blades in the wind all the time. And so you pick up on energy all the time. So you constantly feel drained or overly emotional or very sensitive and you don't know why. And it's because you actually are picking up others energy. So like the difference between someone who's an empath and somebody who has great empathy is that 
somebody who has great empathy might drive by an accident and feel like, oh my gosh, I feel for those people. I hope they're okay. Whereas an empath can actually feel the physical feelings, either of pain or of the emotion of the people in the car. So you, it's like empathy ramped up, dialed to 10. And you run a group, yeah. a support group for those people, don't you? I do. I've actually blended into the Souls Assignment Club. I used to run like a free one. Um, and it just kind of became something that became greater. So there's the Empath Support Group on Facebook that is free, obviously. And it's a great place to get, be and get support from others. A lot of time, the empaths feel very alone in the world, like they're crazy because they have all these feelings. And then you get to be in this club and have some camaraderie and feel like, oh, I'm not alone. This is wonderful. Everybody else feels here too. That's a positive thing. Actually, yeah, very positive. Yeah. You're also, you're coaching. We've talked about it throughout the episode. You run a coaching practice. It's called Cloud9. Yeah. Cloud9 Life Coaching. That's me. <laughs> yes, Cloud9. Because doesn't everybody want to be on Cloud9? Doesn't that sound lovely? I want to be on Cloud9 a lot oh, of the time. Yeah, Cloud9, yeah. When I meditate, Right when I meditate, I'm on cloud nine. <laughs> well, I, you know, I That's think we all reason. we all try to reach that cloud nine within our mind, our body, and our soul. Mm -hmm. We we try to come up to that and bring them all together so that we can take a nice relaxing moment on cloud nine. Exactly, exactly. Which is why I named it cloud nine. This works. What do you do <laughs> in that? How do you help people? I work. I really, I work with people one-on-one -on -one and exactly what I do in the Souls Assignment Club, I do with one-on-one. -on -one. So if you're in the club and you feel like you need a little bit more work on or help really navigating the journey that you're on with having an understanding, you know, maybe in the aura process, you aren't aware. Maybe you feel very lost. Um, so a lot of times people come in and let's say they're in the club and then they feel like, gosh, I just can't get past this one section. Like I call them elements. So, you know, this one element of releasing, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck right now. I don't know how to release this shame. I don't know how to release this guilt. Then we work one-on-one -on -one and that's how we work together is really, you know, learning how, how do you release shame? How do you, how do you lean into that? That's can be scary. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey. I mean, it, it's, mm -hmm. but you have to take the first step in order for you to move forward in that journey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think all of these experiences that you've had give you a better and a clearer understanding more about life and death? Yes, absolutely. I always felt a very big connection to life and death anyways. In fact, when I was doing uh, psychic training, you go through these processes of learning, like, where do you really connect an energy in the world? And for me, you could win the lottery tomorrow, Michael, and I'd have no clue. I have no connection to monetary investments or financial anything. I would send you to somebody else if you needed advice for that. However, I have a huge connection to love and death. And so it was one of the re reasons when I started coaching, I actually became a relationship coach first. That was my first huge endeavor in coaching. And what I found was empaths were just really sort of drawn to me. And that's how I became like this empowerment coach. Cause I really realized that most people in the spiritual community were really needing sort of guidance on how do you really trust your intuition and how do you go within and find that strength and that guidance 
and feel confident in that in a world that's a very linear world, like in Western, you know, society here, we live a very linear world and not so much in the spiritual world. You have to have balance though. Yeah, I agree with that. So (laughs) is that, is that your mission in life now? My big mission right now is really letting people know that they're one decision away from changing their whole life. That I did see this personally, you know, how one decision can change. So have you, you know, when you have somebody who's deciding between life and death, that's a huge one decision. And that's like the extreme example of one decision. But when you take it back to like a smaller decision, it is. I've seen people change their lives over one decision. I changed my life over picking up that phone, making that one call. That one thing changed my whole life. And look where I am today. This is huge. I'm helping others and I'm, be- I'm being with other people. And if anybody walks away with anything, it's, it's that, that, you know, when you feel super stuck and you feel like this is, I just, I keep trying, I'm not getting it. You're one step closer that you, then you did all those experiments. You're done with those. Now you're, you're one step closer to getting it. And a lot of things I hear is that, you know, people are tired. They get tired of trying. And sometimes you just have to take a break, not try for a little bit and then go back. You know, it's okay. I think sometimes we're pushed to keep going, keep going. And sometimes you just have to be like, God, I'm tired for a second. Yeah, <laughs> I need to catch my breath. Catch your breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's my one big mission is really is that and to create connection. I think in COVID, it was probably the most beautiful thing that happened is that we all realized how much we need connection and we need people. And this idea of, I don't like people or, you know, there was this kind of culture of like, I like to be alone in isolation. And then we were all forced with it. And we were all so completely alone or we were faced with this huge like billboard in front of our faces of, wow, this is my life. I can't distract by going out. I can't distract by isolating. I'm just, I am isolated. There is no other choice at this point. And I saw a lot of people sort of hit the wall and then reset. And so it's been interesting from a coach's perspective to watch people go through COVID and what's happened and what's come up and the new things people are sort of wanting to discover and go forward with. That makes yeah. It's I think COVID also brought out the aspect for people that everybody calls it a reset, but in reality, I think instead of a well, let's get back to normal. But when you go back and look at the the what was normal before, was overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And, and that the pace that that slowed, unfortunately, fortunately, and unfortunately. Obviously, the disease, the, the, the COVID would, is not the fortunate part. But the fortunate part is the fact that when you look back on the fact that, yes, you can work from home. Yes, you can spend more time together. My wife and I spent a year and a half. She, she was home for almost a year and a half. During that year and a half time period, we went, we've been married 32 years. We went back to getting up in the morning, going out on the back patio with a cup of tea, you know, enjoying nature, listening to the birds, watching the dog lay around on the porch. Um, you know, it was nice watching the trees blow and the flowers bloom. And then she yeah. would walk into the other room, into her office, and go to work. And instead of driving an hour in horrendous traffic, having to worry on both parts whether or not, you know, 
accidents all the time, you know, getting home safe, you know, an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes later, getting home, hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, going to work. It was just, it created an environment of negativity. So when she was mm-hmm. home for that time period, she kind of had a chance to go, wow, this is really nice. We could be human again, you know? Yeah. It, she walked out of the room. She got off. We walked up. We didn't even turn the news on or the TV on. We either sat on the back. It was too hot now because it's 100 and, 116 degrees today. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but typically, <laughs> go out, you know, you sit back there. You enjoy the sunshine. You enjoy nature. You relax. And it made life so much easier. So, yeah, I, I, I think that back to normal should be what we've experienced to a certain perspective over the last year. Taking yeah. a breath. Yeah. It, it, you know, we, I think we had to redefine what normal was. And I also think the other great thing that happened was everybody's sense of community. Yeah, that was another beautiful thing that happened, that people's sense of community, you know, there was a time period when people, you know, at nine o'clock at night would stand outside and clap for medical workers or, you know, every community kind of had their own thing. And that was a beautiful thing to watch that we were celebrating as a community when we've had these moments of being very divided. And so coming together and connection and, and really feeling that on a community level too, I think was a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. Absolutely. 100%. Um, yeah. I'm going to have all your information here in a few minutes to put up on the screen for okay. everybody so they can see it. But can you also, um, at that time, uh, you can tell us where, you know, how to get a hold of you because you're also going to go on the regular podcast. Uh, you can find on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. Um, but this is one more thing before you go. So before we leave, yeah. is there any advice or any words of wisdom you'd like to share? Um, oh, like I have to just pick one. Michael, one? Okay. Can, All right. No, I'm just kidding. You can pick more than one. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Um, I think, you know, this is something that's been really sort of in my brain lately, which is whatever your biggest fear is, that is your limit. So whatever you fear right now, that's your limit. And to really think, is this it? Do I want this to be my limit or am I going to push past this fear and go further? And I think that's a very, you know, an interesting thought because a lot of times we don't complete our goals or we don't get to where we want to in life. And sometimes we have to break it back down and bring it really in and think, what's holding me back? What fear do I have? And sometimes it's that. It's that fear of being seen, not being included, you're going to fail. And Sometimes we can just work past those, get through that, and then you're on to that other side of the fear. So really sort of check in and think, what is, what is your biggest fear right now that's limiting you? And that would be my biggest sort of, and then here's my other little nugget. I just posted this the other day and I think it's fantastic, which is sometimes in life when you feel very lost to remember that the teacher is very quiet during the test. That's interesting. That's profound words of wisdom. <laughs> and, and advice, Thank actually. you. Both. Thank you very much. So <laughs> I'm going to put you down just a little bit. You can tell us how you get a hold of you. I want to say thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you very much for sharing your journey with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity to get to know you as a fantastic life coach. I'm sure that you are. So how do we get a hold of you? How do we find you? 
It has been such a pleasure, Michael. This has been so wonderful. So thank you for the opportunity to share with you and all of your audience, whoever's listening right now. Um, you can see my stuff up here. So the easiest way to get a hold of me is really Michelle at Cloud9, the number nine, lifecoaching.com. Um, and you can see here that my website is up there, Cloud9 Life Coaching. You can also, you know, see that Linktree has everything that I offer. But if you really resonate with either being an empath today that I was talking about or feeling a very soul-centered life, then you can join the empath support group on Facebook. That's sort of a little peek inside what we do. And there's also the Soul, soul Healing Tribe for soul-centered people on Facebook. And that's all about healing. So if you're resonating with anything that Michael and I have been talking about as far as, you know, maybe something that you're going through or you're nervous about feeling vulnerable or you're going through a breakup, this would be a really beautiful little place to go. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing. Have a nice day. Have a nice week. And thank you. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.